It's been three months since Israel's attack on Gaza. More than 23,000 Palestinian people have been killed. In the United States, some of us have direct ties through family, ancestry, and culture to the siege. But it's a different mode of existence to see this level of violence interpreted and reinterpreted through media thousands of miles away. We all need to be aware of the biases within the media that we consume, but we also need to be aware how other people's reactions and understanding of that issue are shaped by the media that they are consuming. Today, we're talking about media, representation, and how what we see and read and listen to affects our perceptions of the world. This is Stateside. I'm April Baer. Muniba Salim is an associate professor in the Department of Communication at UC Santa Barbara. She previously taught here at the U of M. Her research has been focused on media representation and how it can affect our views of marginalized groups. Hi, Muniba. Thanks, April. Happy to be here. We're also joined today by Dr. Noor Kateli. His work focuses on intergroup relations. Noor, welcome to Stateside. It's great to be here. Thanks for having me. Muniba, I wonder if we could start out by just discussing the psychological impact of what it means to see so much violence, sometimes among people who we have personal ties to in the news. So in general, um, you know, we are heavily influenced by media. And the less outside knowledge we have about a topic or an issue, and the more we rely on media for information about that issue, the more likely media is to influence our attitudes about that issue. So you specifically asked me about violence. So watching violent media in general will increase our perceptions that are in line with aggression and violence and will subsequently influence aggressive and angry emotions. And those increases in aggressive perceptions and angry emotions ultimately lead to aggressive behaviors. That's kind of the way that it works in general when we're consuming any sort of violent medium. But if it's violence towards specific groups, then you can imagine how perceptions and emotions become specific towards members of those groups, as do behaviors that are directed at members of those groups. One of the things that we sometimes hear folks express in in just their interpersonal conversations about what's happening is, I'm concerned if I say that I support Palestinians, people will conclude that I'm anti-Semitic or vice versa. You know, some people might think if I say that I sympathize with how what Israel has done, people will believe I'm anti-Islam. Does that have any roots in the trends that you've seen in your research? So I think it's an excellent question. I mean, one of the things that what you're referring to speaks to from the research perspective is what's known as sort of like collective blame. One of the things that we uh, have found is that, you know, sometimes people sort of uh, overgeneralize from actions of a subset of a group to assuming that the whole group is entirely responsible. And I think that that bears some similarities to some of what you're talking about, right? That if you might have some sympathy for what's going on, as you said, you know, on the Palestinian side, sometimes that can get construed as necessarily being pro-Hamas more generally, right? Um and, you know, there were even some examples of that actually occurring on the media, right? So the BBC, for example, had to issue an apology for having described certain uh, pro-Palestinian protesters as pro-Hamas demonstrations, uh, even though, um, you know, there may have been some individuals in those protests who may have said some things that could have been seen to be supportive of Hamas. But, you know, when you're talking about an entire demonstration, 
you want to be cautious about sort of tarring everyone in that demonstration with the same brush. And of course, the same could be true on the other side. So I think that that's something to be mindful of. The other thing I want to say is that this is also where um, the issue or conflict in sides become what's called a zero-sum context, where support for one is automatically perceived as opposition for the other. It's not necessarily the case for you know the issue itself, but people perceive that that if I support this side, then I'm up, then the opposition may think that I'm not supporting theirs. So that's what the zero sum context issue is. I feel like every time uh, violence flares up, there's a re-education process that the mainstream media seems to undergo in thinking about how they talk about these things. As you consider the 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 kind of language that can be potentially damaging uh, for for cover of, uh, you know, in, in the coverage, can you, can you maybe give us some examples of what that might actually look like? So as it relates to what I might consider things kind of like dehumanizing language uh, or language that may not sort of center the humanity of the people involved, right? One of the things that has come up recently in conversations about media depictions is the distinction between using terms like people in a group uh, having been killed or having died, right? So one of these is a lot more sort of passive and, and reactive. Other things that, you know, I, I think one needs to be sensitive to as you think about language that might be dehumanizing or underplay the humanity of another group is, you know, when you talk about treating another group as sort of like an undifferentiated mass, or if you conflate civilians with combatants as sort of all belonging to the same type of group, again, in in that way, you know, that's sort of a hallmark in dehumanization is looking at a group as one undifferentiated whole, as opposed to recognizing differences among them. So those are some of the things that uh, I would point to. It's also the case that I think, you know, journalists have to be really cautious about when they use terms like barbaric and savage, not necessarily referring to particular actions, but rather to a group as a whole, because again, we know that uh, those types of terms are uh, associated with what the researchers or research community would talk about as blatant forms of dehumanization. Muniba, what comes to mind about how we can all combat media bias? I guess I'm asking about how we how we put this through our own lens as we consume information. So. I want to start by first saying that for this conflict specifically, most Americans don't have a lot of sources of information about this outside of media. Again, that emphasizes the importance of media in affecting those audiences' perceptions. It is also true that decisions regarding what to cover, when to cover it, and then how to cover, all of those are shown by research to affect audiences' perceptions about any event or issue that's being uh, covered. Simple, seemingly decisions that are being taken can influence audience perceptions. The other thing is that we know from a lot of research that mainstream American media tends to represent disempowered and marginalized groups, generally underrepresents them, but also negatively represents them. And there's tons of content analyses that have shown that pattern. And for Muslims specifically, Muslims, people from the MENA group, are often conflated and associated with themes involving terrorism, involving violence involving anti-Western values. And those depictions then subsequently influence the audience's perceptions towards members of these groups, their emotions towards members of these groups, and even their public policy decisions involving members of these groups. You asked me about what can people do, I think, with respect to media consumption. First of all, we need to be aware of these media biases occurring. 
um, if there's any doubt regarding how American media tends to represent um, issues, depending on you know their political leaning, you can go to this website called allsides.com. They'll show you how the same headline is being covered by the left versus the right versus the center. And if you go to that website, you'll realize how people that are watching this issue, that are reading about this issue from one of those sides, are going to walk away with a completely different picture of what just happened. So we all need to be aware of the biases within the media that we consume, but we also need to be aware how other people's reactions and understanding of that issue are shaped by the media that they are consuming. And I think this matters, especially when we talk about like where the, the start of the story is happening, right? So if the story is happening with one incident, and then you're surprised that another person is not reacting in the same way that you would expect them to as a result of that incident, maybe their starting point is different. And one thing that I think is really unfortunate as it relates to this conflict in particular is that we often report on this conflict primarily when there is a particular conflagration, a violent conflagration, right? Uh, and, you know, famously, uh, it's said about the media that, you know, if it bleeds, it leads. But one of the problems about that is that it tends to sort of heighten the tendency to associate uh, particularly marginalized groups with violence alone, even when there may be lots of periods in between violent events in which there are, in fact, important nonviolent efforts that are being conducted to advance a particular perspective or a particular argument. If we don't give the same energy to covering groups when they are engaged in nonviolent actions, and we only cover those same groups when they're involved with violence, that can have the effect, at least, of uh, furthering an implicit association between those groups and violence, right? If we only ever see Arabs, for example, in the context of violence, then it may be not surprising that many people in the United States end up having an implicit association between Arab and less than human. In fact, in some of my uh, own work, we've looked at some of these implicit associations, and we found that equally among Democrats and Republicans, the sort of implicit mental representation that Americans tend to have of Arabs as less than fully human. Even when it's the case that Democrats on average are much more likely to say that Arabs are fully human, but when you sort of look under the hood, that ideological difference goes away and I suspect that a big part of the reason for that difference is that oftentimes in the media that Americans are consuming, they're, they're usually seeing Arabs and Muslims and other marginalized groups primarily in the context of violence. And I think that has to do with what we choose to cover and when we choose to cover it. We need to take a break. We'll have more with Muniba Salim and Noor Kateli in just a moment. Be right back. Support for Michigan Public's stateside podcast comes from Lake Trust Credit Union, working to empower financial well-being for Michigan consumers, businesses, and communities. Committed to financial solutions and advice to support people and families. More information at laketrust.org. Support for the stateside podcast comes from Kalamazoo College, offering a personalized education that combines critical thinking, curiosity, and creativity committed to preparing students for meaningful careers that make a positive impact on the world. More at kzoo.edu. Muniba, one of the things that you've you've looked at in your research is the way that these kinds of perceptual uh, influences 
they don't just affect how we see other people. Sometimes they can affect how we see ourselves. Will you tell us a bit about what, what you've learned about media representation and, and its impact on young Muslim Americans? Yeah, thank you for asking that. Um, this is one piece of research that is very underrepresented in, in our understanding of how media is affecting not just the majority group, so to speak, but also the depicted members themselves. Really what happens is that watching your group being represented in a negative way and only through a single story does affect your own self-esteem as well as what's called collective group esteem. This has consequences for your intergroup relations, the way that you interact with the members of another group, as well as your trust in the mainstream society and its politics. But then also at times it can be motivating, especially if you feel like you have your group support to engage in what's called collective action, which is that I'm going to change the image of my group. I'm going to work with my group in providing an alternate perspective and providing a correct perspective to provide this nuanced representation. Social media can really be a double-edged sword. For a lot of people, it has been a great source of community. At the same time, information moves so quickly, and there's not a lot of time for contextualizing. Like you said, this is a little bit less well-represented area in the research, but do either of you have thoughts on how, how young people might be processing this time sort of filtering both the things that they're that are coming at them from established media and the things that they they get from the sources they trust. Yeah, so I mean as you said I think it is a bit of a double-edged sword. One of the challenges with social media is that you're not necessarily getting oftentimes the same level of authentication and verification that we would at least hope uh is occurring effectively among, you know, mainstream media sources. We certainly know that one of the things that has occurred in this conflict is, you know, some degree of spread of uh, misinformation or disinformation. But at the same time, one of the major benefits of social media is that it's providing a window into events that people may not have been uh, liable to see in previous times, right? Like one of the challenges right now is that there isn't a great deal of journalistic coverage and from mainstream media sources on the ground in Gaza to my uh, best approximation, you know, a lot of that is happening through Al Jazeera, but a lot of other mainstream media sources are not really present in any significant way on the ground. And so, you know, you're getting a little bit of both things going on. There's uh, more information out there that people can get access to uh, that is unfiltered. Uh, and that unfiltering means that people might be seeing more of the full picture than they might have in previous years or uh, previous events. But at the same time, I think oftentimes there is more murkiness about whether every individual news story that's coming out is necessarily accurate and representing the whole truth. It's interesting because people, you know, think that social media is important in, in having these alternative perspectives, but there's this other perspective of like slacktivism, which is basically like people that are doing things on social media aren't really doing anything in um, real world, so to speak. But what's really interesting is actually there's a difference in perceptions between the um, advantage and majority group and then the disempowered and marginalized groups. Marginalized groups will see social media as effective, whereas the advantage group will see it as ineffective in actually making some sort of a change. And really the, the underlying assumption here is because marginalized groups tend not to have their perspectives be part of the mainstream narrative. And so social media allows them to share that perspective with not just their like-minded individuals, but also to the larger audience from the more um, you know, advantaged group. 
But then the other thing I'll say about that is that posting a message, um, you have to be very cautious about that. As Noor said, your information about the issue, which is affecting your support, may be incomplete. It may be based on um, sources that are not authentic. But by posting that message, you are now influencing everybody in your network with your support. And people that are in your network and that trust you and you know are similar and like-minded will then also be influenced in the same way that you are. And it's important to note on that point that you know when we are experiencing or learning about a particular uh, news event that's occurring in the moment and there's not been a great deal of verification or validation, we're not necessarily interpreting that completely neutrally because we bring with us a whole set of assumptions and, and pre-existing beliefs about whether that information is likely to be true or not. And so it becomes easy for us to sort of uh, be uh, overly believing perhaps of things that may not be the full story. And if, as Maniba pointed out, you know, if we spread and share that information, then we might be contributing to an overall ecosystem uh, that ultimately diminishes people's trust. My guests today have been Muniba Salim, adjunct faculty associate at the U of M's Institute for Social Research. She's also an associate professor at UC Santa Barbara. And Noor Kateli, who studies intergroup relations through the Dispute Resolution Research Center at Northwestern. Muniba, Noor, it's been great talking to you both. Thank you. My pleasure. Thank you so much for giving us a voice, April. Thanks so much for having us, April. And that's the Stateside Podcast for today. I'm April Baer. You can find full Stateside episodes at michiganpublic.org. Today's podcast was produced by our pod editor, Rachel Ishikawa. Other producers on the show are Mike Blank, Ronia Kapansag, Mercedes Mejia, and April Van Buren. Our interns are Olivia Meradian and Laura Neong. Our executive producer is Laura Weber-Davis. Music for the pod comes from Blue Dot Sessions and from Audio Network. Thank you for listening. We'll see you next time.